I read James Kugel's commentary on Ecclesiastes, and I fell in love with it. So we're going to do Ecclesiastes. We're going to go back and forth. Sometimes I'll be reading out of English Standard. Sometimes I'll be reading uh, James Kugel's translation. He does not translate the whole book, but he has a commentary on it, which is just really nice. As most of you know, Ecclesiastes falls into what's considered wisdom literature, along with Proverbs and, and so forth. It starts as a young man, and it ends up with death, his death. And in the middle of it, it becomes autobiographical in some parts. Some parts of it are straight wisdom literature. Two-sentence wisdom format that is used in Proverbs. Some of it's just straightforward. I'm not going to spend 12 weeks on this. I'm going to do this much faster than that. For those of you who were with us when we did Proverbs, what I found kind of fun, and I hope everybody else did too, because that's what I did, is instead of going through each proverb one at a time, what we did is we'd pick a proverb in a chapter and we'd read it and then we'd talk about what it meant. The idea of wisdom literature is it's designed to be unpacked. It's a very compact way of representing knowledge. One of the things that you'll notice as we go through Ecclesiastes is there are a lot of seeming contradictions. In one part of it, he'll say one thing, and then he'll go to another part, and he'll say something just exactly opposite. And the way Kugel describes it is one of the things that I've really found charming. I won't use his example. I'll use my own example. Have you ever heard of the story of the five blind men of Hindustan? It's a story. I was taught as a child, but as I now look back on it, it is extremely wise. The story is there's five wise men of Hindustan and they're blind. They are trying to describe an elephant. A description of the elephant from the little bit of the elephant that he can perceive using only touch. Tail's a rope, the trunk's a snake. I mean, it, it, I don't remember the exact details. The, the point that Kugel makes about this is the preacher or the writer, and by the way, the traditional description of this is to Solomon. And there's some doubt about that, but we'll use Solomon. It works fine for me and doesn't make any big difference. But the way the writer of this is writing, it's very much like the wise men of Hindustan. When he's standing here, he describes the world and life from this perspective. And then a chapter later, he's standing somewhere else. And he describes it from that perspective. And it seems like those are two contradictory things, and they're not, at least not from the perspective of his observation. The other thing about it, and especially if it was Solomon who wrote it, is he's clearly an expert in wisdom literature, clearly very expert in those. But you've all read Job, and you remember Job's three friends, and they're trying to do their best by him but they're trying to do it from the perspective of wisdom literature. In other words, wisdom literature doesn't find the world incomprehensible. You have all of these proverbs that wisdom has put together and you add them all together and at the end of this, at least if you're an expert in that kind of thing, you have a pretty good idea of what the world looks like. Well, Solomon in Ecclesiastes very often looks at these 
wisdom passages that would have been perfectly happy in Proverbs and says, eh, I don't know. I don't think so. So a lot of it is him writing things down and then looking at them and saying, is this really true? Is that really the way things are? And then he'll go along a chapter later and he'll look at it things slightly different again and he'll just be definite. Yeah, that's the way things are. And so the book shifts as you go through it and his perspective shifts as you go through it. And we'll read the first couple chapters tonight. And one of the perspectives of Solomon here is at different stages of a man's life, the world is different. You know, you've all heard the famous, a time to live, you know, that kind of stuff. And the way Kugel translates that is very interesting. It's not that all those things will come around. It's that everybody has a season in his life. And when you are on the season of birth, this is what you're doing. And at the end of your life, when you're at the season of dying, this is what you're doing. And sometime in the middle, you're at the season of planting. And sometimes you're at the season of harvesting. It isn't that each of these things always happens, it's that each of us goes through these different seasons in our lives, sometimes multiple times. And one of the things that he talks about is the cyclic nature of existence. The idea is until you have been through a bunch of cycles, you really don't understand what's going on. Hence, the young man being a fool, and as he grows and gets experience, he becomes wiser. Similarly, there are things that are appropriate for a young man that are no longer appropriate for an old man. You know, some of the stuff that I did when I was in my 20s that God and I hope other people have forgiven me for, if I were to do those same things now at this stage in my life, I would be looked at entirely different than I would have been looked at as, you know, hot rock young 20-year-old full of hormones and vinegar and all that kind of stuff. So what's appropriate for you depends on where you are, and the book very much explores that. It takes you, not precisely, but generally through the stages of a man's life. I'm going to start reading, and I'm going to read Kugel's translation of the first chapter. Follow along in your own, and you'll see some differences. Oh, one other thing before I get started. This word, which is translated in most of your Bibles, vanity, the underlying Hebrew word is hevel, which doesn't mean vanity in the English sense. In the English language sense, vanity means stupid pride, for lack of a better term. That's not what's being talked about here. And for the places where I dip into Kugel's translation, he's translated that word differently depending on what's going on in the book. So the traditional understanding of vanity is insubstantial. In other words, it's a breath. Rosie's translation says futility, and that's, again, another translation. And sometimes that's the right translation because there are times when it generally means futile. Somebody's doing something that is a waste of time, futile, and it is not going to get any profit for his efforts. Other times it means transient. Like a breath is transient, it doesn't last. And so in some senses he's talking about insubstantial, and sometimes he's talking about futile. Other times he is talking about vanity, as we would understand it in English. 
In the places where Google has got a translation, he's tried to capture those nuances by using a different English word in place of the same Hebrew word, hevel. So with that, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 1 is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We'll just leave that for right now. As far as most people are concerned, we're talking about Solomon. So now I'm starting in verse 2. And by the way, the word that's translated preacher is Kohelet. So futile, says Kohelet, everything is so futile. What does a person ever net from all the effort he expends under the sun? One generation goes out and another comes in, but the earth stays the same forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. Then rushing back to its place, it rises again. The wind blows toward the south, then turns to the north. It turns and turns as it goes, the wind, and goes back again by its turning. All the rivers flow to the sea, but the sea is never full. Because to the source of the rivers flowing, there they flow back again. Though all the words grow wearisome, a man does not cease to speak. The eye cannot see enough, nor can the ear be filled up with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what was done will be done again, for there is nothing new under the sun. Sometimes there is something about which people say, Look at this, it is new. Long ago it was, in the ages that existed before us. There is no remembrance of former things, just as with regard to the later things that will be. They will have no remembrance either with those who will be after them. So the first thing you get from that is the idea that everything is futile. All the effort that we expend is to no profit. One of the things he says, what's the net of all this? An economic term, you know, what, what's the net after I've sold everything? And the net is zero. But then he'll go on in a later chapter and say, there's nothing better than a good name. Well, if a good name is permanent and remembered from generations to generations, then the idea here in this first chapter that nothing matters isn't right. That's the sense that Kugel is talking about. All right, looking at it from this position, it looks like everything's futile. But looking at it from here, there's nothing better than a good name. And you'll see that kind of stuff throughout the whole book as we go. There's a couple of things that are interesting about this. In verse 8, Kugel's translation says, Though all words grow wearisome, a man does not cease to speak. The eye cannot see enough, nor can the ear be filled up with hearing. In English Standard, that same thing is, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So the idea is, as you go through life, people don't stop speaking, people don't stop seeing, people don't stop hearing, and the senses do not get filled up. And so in that sense, you have the cyclic nature of time and life goes through cycles, and those cycles just continue, and the whole thing is never full. It is never complete. It is never finished. It just goes on and on and on. And we've talked about that in Midrash and so forth, the idea of you're riding on a screw, and the screw feels like it's going round and round and round, and if you're just looking at the edge of the screw, 
it doesn't look like you're making any progress because you come back around to Passover, you come back around to Shavuot, you come back around to Sukkot, and the next year you come back around and do it again. And if you're just riding the edge of the screw, it seems like you're making no progress. But of course, we all know that the whole purpose of a screw is that each turn advances it in a direction. Very much that kind of thing that's being described here. In fact, that's probably a good example because as he's looking here in this first chapter, he's sitting on the screw. And he's just looking at the cycles go round and round, and the eye is not full, and the ears are not full, and we're just doing it over and over again, and we keep doing it, and nothing's ever complete. Later on, he will look at it from the perspective of the one who is driving the screw, and he will see that things move in a direction while they go cyclically. So the comment was that all of this seems kind of prophetic, and Second Peter agrees. So turn to Second Peter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You have in Ecclesiastes this idea of cyclic continuity forever. The world is organized in cycles. People's lives are organized in cycles. We have cycles and cycles and cycles. And what Peter is saying is, as the cycles continue, scoffers will show up and say, hey, wait a minute. You said that the screw's supposed to be advancing, but nothing's happening. We're still going around and around and around, just like we always have. And what Peter says is that people who teach that and use that to say that the second coming is not going to happen are scoffers. And I'm now switching back to the English Standard Version. So I'm in Ecclesiastes 1.12 now. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. I will never forget, Jeff Bryce Stupa was one of the founding members of the congregation. He was one of the four or five families that we put this place together with. And the first time that he got up to read was on Shavuot. And the reading was Ecclesiastes. And he says, you're expecting me to read the whole thing? And we said, yes, we are. And he gave an introduction to it that I thought was just brilliant. After 20 years, I have not forgotten it. I thought it was so good. And what he said was, Solomon is according to the Bible, the wisest man who ever lived. And having been given all that wisdom by God, Solomon regarded it as his duty to tell us what he had learned. In other words, the wisdom wasn't just for Solomon. The wisdom was for Solomon the king. And it was the job of the king then to take that gift of wisdom and 
report to the world what he learned with that gift that God gave him. And Ecclesiastes, then, is that book. I've always thought that was just a really brilliant perspective on the book. I've liked it very much, obviously, because I remember it after 20 years. So, back in 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So what he's trying to do is use the wisdom that God has given him to figure out life. And what he is going to discover is that wisdom is not sufficient to do that. So if you were writing a thesis in college, this would be sort of your purpose statement. I am going to take this wisdom that God has given me and I'm going to apply it and I'm going to figure out the purpose of life. That's his thesis statement. As we go through the book, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is we keep finding these contradictions where he says, this is true. On the other hand, and he'll say something that directly contradicts it. And what he's showing you through that is wisdom by itself is not sufficient. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to say, all right, I'm going to try wisdom. I'm going to try self-indulgence. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. And he'll report back what he found out in every case. But one of the things that he says is even while he was acting the fool, he still had his wisdom watching what he was doing. In other words, he could never get so foolish that he was able to abandon his wisdom. And so he was always watching his foolishness and watching the fruits of his foolishness and finally said, eh, that's a waste of time because his wisdom was always watching it. And this first paragraph is a real downer. But then he goes on and he says, oh, but from the other hand, he'll look at it differently. And yeah, it looks like a tree here and it's pretty depressing, but I'm going to look at it a little bit later and it looks like a rope. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. All right, so back up to the Marshall in 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Two concepts there, obviously. First off, there are things in the world that are crooked, and man can't fix them. That is, by the way, the absolute perfect refutation to the idea of socialism. Because socialism says, if you just put the right people in charge, we can fix it all and everything will be wonderful and we'll have paradise on earth. What Solomon is saying is what's crooked can't be made straight. Which is, by the way, the human heart. Because remember, the human heart is desperately wicked and so forth all over the place. So the idea that the thing that God has made crooked cannot be made straight. And then what is lacking cannot be counted. The way I say this when I say it is there is no limit to what you lack. No matter how much you get, you can always look out there and there's way more to be potentially had than what you have. So verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So what he's saying here is, if you will, a reflection on the Marshall in 15. And notice, by the way, 
in the middle, he puts in a personal I set in my heart. It ceases to be third person, it now becomes first person. So he's talking about his journey here. And what he's saying is, and he'll say later on in a different way, that one of the best things that a man can do is to work hard, enjoy the fruits of his labor, be happy, love God, and die. And he'll say one place that women are treacherous and evil and so forth, and then the next place he'll say, there's nothing better than to live with the woman of your life and have a good life with her. So you see, he will say things both ways. So what he's saying here is everything I was doing, my wisdom was watching. And I was not able simply to abandon myself and give myself over to drink and concubines and all that kind of stuff because I always was watching what the results were and I was never able truly to be stupid. And so the more I knew, the less pleasure I got in being stupid. All this wisdom that I have gotten has prevented me from enjoying things that people who are not as wise as I am would just have a great time with. He's going to say here, I'm the richest man in the country. I can have anything I want. And so I did. And what I discovered was it wasn't satisfying. And by the way, that's a really important point. Going back to Jeff Prystupa, his idea that he has been given this fantastic wisdom, and this is his report back to humanity of what he learned. If he had been anything besides Solomon, it would have been possible for somebody to say, well, yeah, but you didn't try this. In other words, if you could have afforded to do this, you'd have finally been happy. And his position as king and having everything that was available to a human being available to him without anybody to tell him no and without anybody to tell him you can't afford it and without anybody to tell him you don't have the power to do that, if it was somebody else, it would always be possible to say, you just weren't able to do this. And if you'd been able to do this, it would have been okay. And so his position here as the king is also important to the report that he is giving about the results of his investigations. On to chapter 2. This is starting as a young man. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Notice he can't turn the wisdom off. He really, in a sense, wishes I could just turn the wisdom off and see what profit we would have in a good drink. So I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. 
I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So what he's saying here is, I am a trust fund baby, daddy's a billionaire, and I have got a credit card with no limit. And I get to do anything that is on my mind. And furthermore, I'm the king. So I'm not even worried about the cops pulling me over for a DUI. You understand what he's saying here. But he's also saying, I never lost my wisdom. So I could look at all of this and I could see that it was not ultimately satisfying. The other phrase that goes through this whole thing, and I might as well stop for a second and explain it now. Come back to verse three and a half. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Under heaven, under the sun, those are both key phrases to this whole book. And the idea here is what is available to us in the created world. It is explicitly not talking about what is in heaven, the place where God lives. It is talking about the part of creation that we have access to. And when he says there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing new under heaven, what shall the children of men do under heaven, all of this is talking about the world that we have access to. And it explicitly excludes heaven itself. So now we're all the way down to verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. You know, this is, the killjoy is always there, okay? Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Remember we talked about planting vineyards and planting orchards and making lakes to water the orchards and all that kind of stuff. That's work. He had platoons of slaves and servants to do the work, but he had to organize it and direct it. This was effort on his part. And what he says is, my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So as he is creating things, flocks and orchards and squads of singers and all that stuff that he's organizing as the king in Jerusalem, he's finding satisfaction in the process of making things happen. And that satisfaction that he finds in making things happen is his reward for doing it. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Notice, under the sun. He has the pleasure of having accomplished something, but then he looks at what he's accomplished, and later on what he'll say is, all of this stuff that I've accomplished, I'm going to have to leave to somebody else, because I'm going to die. And when I die and I leave it to somebody else, I don't know whether this guy is going to be wise or a fool. I don't know whether the stuff that I've made has any permanence whatsoever. In fact, I'm sure it doesn't. 
again, his wisdom never leaves. He's always got this wisdom auditing everything that he does. Cosmic killjoy, as, as he said at the end of chapter 2. Verse 12, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So what he's saying is, I am the king. I've done everything. What are people going to do that come after me? The same thing I did. Just like he said back in chapter 1, that everything is cyclical. And everything that is happening has happened sometime before. So he's saying the same thing. Verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Now, notice wisdom and folly, light and darkness. Who creates light and darkness? God does. And then wisdom and folly is the task of men. So then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, light and darkness again. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. In other words, they are all going to die. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Remember now, he's trying all this stuff and he's got this auditor in his head, this wise auditor that's sitting up watching everything he's doing and counting the cost and basically being a cosmic killjoy. So here he says in verse 15, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? In other words, why have I let wisdom rob me of all the joy that I could have had? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. And vanity here is probably evanescent, which is to say transitory, like a fog or a mist or a breath. It's insubstantial. Verse 16, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Remember, he says, nothing that's happening now is anything that hasn't happened before. But then, as I said at the beginning, one of the things that he will then say later on is a good name is a very valuable thing. And of course, a good name which lives after you, as Solomon's name lives after him, and David's name lived after him, and Moses' name lives after him, they have not been forgotten. But here, he is at the stage where everything is forgotten. And he'll look at it from another perspective later on, and he'll come up with the good name part. 16 again. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So he's tried everything he can think of, and has found no satisfaction. And part of the reason he's found no satisfaction is because of this wisdom. He's still talking about under the sun. And one of the things about wisdom is it is human wisdom. But he recognizes that it's not complete. 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. 
seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. In other words, all this stuff I've applied my wisdom to is going to go to somebody else. And I have no idea whether this guy's going to be a great man or a jerk. And I have no control over it. Not that he doesn't have any control over who he leaves it to. He does. What he doesn't have any control over is whether the guy that he leaves it to is going to turn out to be good or bad, a wise or a jerk. That part he doesn't have any control over. 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Notice what he's done. He's given himself over to pleasure. He's given himself over to work. Now he says, okay, I'm going to try despair. We're going to try depression for a while. That's what he says, right? He's exploring all the options. 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. What he was doing before is he was doing all these great works and he was taking pleasure from the accomplishment. So now he's looking at all of his work as drudgery and a vexation, and I'm not going to take any pleasure for that. I'm going to try depression. 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So now what he's doing is he is starting to shift his focus. He's starting off with, this is what I'm doing through human wisdom and my understanding. And now what I'm doing is getting a glimmering that God has given us things to do. And if we do them and enjoy them, then this is a gift from God. He's popped up a level now. He's no longer just under the sun. 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What he's seeing here is we already knew that wisdom, in Solomon's case, was a gift of God. When he ascended to the throne, he was a young man, and he prayed to God and asked for wisdom that he might lead the people of Israel. And God said to him, since you didn't ask for wealth or power, I'm going to give you wisdom, but I'm also going to give you wealth and power. And notice the thing that's been added here. Let me read it again. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. There's a new word there. This is the first place we've seen something besides grim depression and a sense that riding the wheel, as the Eastern religions would call it, you know, going around and around on the cycles, the first sense that there is something more to that than grim repetition. And what he's saying is God has also given us the capacity for joy. And he's also said, by the way, God, that those who 
do not see anything but the wheel, the cycles, and go through their lives head down and butt up and never look up, those people are toiling and gathering and they are doing it for the one who pleases God, even though they think they are doing it for themselves. Let us show